Section 9 of The Man Who Understood Women and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. The Man Who Understood Women and Other Stories by Leonard Merrick. The Laurels and the Lady, Part Three. Part Seven. Compared with this new and stupendous difficulty, the dreaded need for meeting his demand for the copies of his reveries appeared a simple matter enough. When she came next, she placed a parcel on his knees, with so little misgiving that she was surprised at herself. The poet gave a cry of delight. "'My book! It's my book!' She told him to cut the string, but his fingers shook and he couldn't manage it. "'Oh, I can't! You!' She took the penknife from him and then let him unfold the wrappings himself. Six volumes met his touch with an electric thrill, all alike, but each to be caressed apart from the others, each of them lovable and delicious. How delicate was the surface that he stroked! He was holding his firstborn, and he thanked God. The emotion was the true emotion, though it was conjured up by fraud. It was the bliss of ignorance, but none the less bliss. He was holding his firstborn, and Polly had given him a joy no meaner than heaven would have given had it granted him the power that he fancied he had displayed. Six copies of another work and imagination were as potent as reality. Tell me what it's like, he whispered. It is, she said, a pale, curious fawn. The edges are stained a deeper shade, and the name of William Childers is at the bottom of the cover, a little to the right, in dark, antique lettering. Let me trace it. Show me. She obeyed terrified, watching his efforts breathlessly. I can't make it out, but it looks well, eh? It looks well. It looks beautiful, she said. The paper's thin, he murmured. I'd hope they'd give me better paper. It's thin, she confessed remorsefully, but very good-looking. I think it looks more uncommon than if it had been thick. And the type, big, is there a wide margin? There's a very wide margin, asserted Polly. Give me your finger again. There, all that is margin, and the type's splendid. I can read it from here. She could. She could read, The Norman Conquest. Edward was not a vigorous king. He had little authority while... He cuddled the book with a long-drawn sigh of content. Perhaps soon I shall be able to see it. "'Rosa, when do we go? Need we wait long? I'm on fire. But, oh, I'm happy, too. Happy, happy. I'm happier than I ever hoped to be, although I've no eyes. Since I knew you, my whole life has changed. How can I repay you?' Suddenly a passionate desire seized him. "'Read me the first poem,' he prayed." read me seek eater at astra let me hear rosa duchene speak my verse she stood speechless her head was swimming rosa wait she stammered 
It's new to me. You are a poet, and it's new to me. Wait till I know them, Willie. I have a reputation to lose. She thanked her guiding star she had retained the manuscript, and he, his disappointment passing, thought how sweet was this timidity in such a woman. He told her his thought, with triumphant tenderness. She resolved that he should have plenty of opportunities for the triumph in future. She had proposed that, on the journey before them, she should adopt his surname. To explain the unavoidable suggestion, she had urged that, while Duchesne's features might be familiar to many, Duchesne's name would be known to all, and entail perpetual embarrassment. In agreeing with this, he had removed her initial anxiety from her mind. Freed from it, she made the needful preparations with less of fright in her soul. And now, since they were to go, she was sometimes eager for them to be gone soon. There was the contingency that a man might drop in on him, and at the final instant destroy the whole fabric of the deception that she had weaved. She strove to persuade herself that she might preserve her lover's delusion more securely, where she had only strangers to fear, than she could have done on the diamond fields. But then her reason mocked her for the hope. So many things might happen. She dared not look ahead. Alternately, she longed and trembled for the hour that was to see them start. She was fighting pluckily, but in moments the enormity of the undertaking to which she had set her hand paralyzed her, and at every step she seemed called upon to vanquish a further obstacle that had not been suspected till it barred the way. When the morning broke at last, her predominant sensation was pleasure. Her own luggage was ready, and while Bad Shilling went for their breakfast, she was busy packing the remaining things of Willie's. She was still on her knees, endeavoring to fasten the box, while Willie sat on it, when the boy returned. His additional weight, for he was a boy of about forty years of age, weighing twelve stones, disposed of the matter, and they sat down to the coffee and steaks at the untidy table gaily, reminding each other that it was for the last time. The negro had come back with a cart, and, the meal concluded, they made haste to leave. As they mounted to their seats, the doors of the cottage and of all the sheds about the works banged violently. The long, low, swishing sound was heard that heralded a dust storm. In another minute the air was dark, and they hid their faces to shield them from the hissing, stinging grit. Such dust storms were of constant occurrence, but in this one the little Hottentot driver appeared to read a warning, for he lashed forward the horses furiously. They gained the station before the rain that he had foreseen began to fall, but it did fall, in floods, sweeping less fortunate animals off their feet and Polly's cheerfulness deserted her as she glanced back into the deluge. Superstitiously, she felt that the adventure had opened under ominous conditions. Part 8 However, the thirty-odd hours in the train were uneventful, and they reached Cape Town safely. Again, both were exhilarated. The comparative freshness of the atmosphere, to her the sparkle of the sea beyond the jetty, and to him the scent of it. The odor of flowers and the rustle of trees were delicious after the desert they had left. 
and he drove in a hansom again, a white hansom, with a coloured driver truly, but a hansom. They went straight to a little inn of which Polly had heard outside the town. It seemed to her to be almost at the foot of the mountain whose squareness broke off so sharply against the intense blue sky, and, obtaining rooms, they sat down and smiled at each other in delight. "'How clean everything feels,' said Willie. "'The towels and the chair covers. It's jolly.' She had been thinking so, too. Inside it was clean, and outside it was green and tranquil. The road that the hostel overlooked was, at this part, an avenue of firs, glinting here and there with branches of the silver leaves that are sent to England as birthday cards, with stiff little views or sentiments painted on them. Presently a Malay maid servant, a starched white triangle from the armpits down, with a bright silk fez upon her head, came in with their dinner, and they tasted fruit once more not fruit as it was procurable in Kimberley, but luscious peaches and purple figs and a watermelon plucked since an hour. They sat dawdling over their coffee by the window while the moon rose, and now and again the thrum of a banjo was borne to them on the stillness. And Childers smoked a cigarette, because the situation seemed to call for one, though he enjoyed it only with his fingers now. In the morning they took one of the trains that pottered between the suburbs and Cape Town and sent the cablegram to the solicitor. But they were not impatient for the money to arrive. They contemplated with fortitude the two or three days that they would have to pass here. When the answer came, and they left the bank with a roll of notes in Polly's pocket, they went to the office of the company that had a boat sailing next, to engage their passages, and here they met with their first disappointment. All the berths were booked, and it was necessary for them to wait for the Union steamer, which left a week later. It was disconcerting, but it couldn't be helped. After all, they were comfortable at the inn, and though Childers experienced more regret than Polly, he was not very seriously chagrined either. They walked home talking, for it was an agreeable walk after one had passed the smell of the tannery at Papendorp. He spoke of the suspense in which he waited to learn how the critics received reveries, the humiliation he would feel if they sneered at it. And then the girl told him how the scene about them looked, of the fields of arum lilies, despised like buttercups in England, of the clusters of maidenhair fern fluttering in every hedge. Look! she exclaimed. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean how sweet this is, Will. This villa. Those high cactuses, cacti, what is it? Divide us from the garden, but here at the gate one can see in. The lawn is yellow with loquat trees and crimson with japonicas. It's all patches of color and shadow, and it's got a perfect duck of a step. And, oh, a lovely old negress with white hair who's coming down to us. Let's go on. She'd bother us to go over it, perhaps. It's to let. We shall find a difference when we get to London, shan't we? He said. Fancy it. January. The cold, the wet, the bustling crowds in the foggy streets, and the mud carts slopping over. What a contrast. London has got suburbs, too. Dulwich, where you lived, is a suburb, isn't it? It wouldn't be like that if we went to Dulwich. No, he said. 
We shouldn't find crowds in Dulwich because the people who live there never go out, and there'd be no mud carts because in deadly Dulwich the mud is never cleared away. But its long, dreary, desolate roads aren't like this one in the least. Cape Town appeared to him, in spite of his affliction, much more attractive now than it had done eighteen months before when he saw it. The thought occurred to him that he might turn their enforced delay to account by consulting one of its medical men and obtaining a second and more authoritative opinion. He mentioned the idea to Polly, and she ascertained that the best man to whom he could go was an Englishman, Dr. Eben Drysdale. They heard very encouraging accounts of his ability. Though not a specialist, he had effected some remarkable cures in ophthalmic cases, it was said, and after Polly had written for an appointment, Willie grew more and more excited at the prospect of the visit. The girl herself did not know what to desire. As they mounted the steps of the house, her knees knocked together. To hope the man might say that no operation would succeed sounded so heartless that she was ashamed to look at Willie while her struggle with the hope was going on. Yet for his sight to be restored would mean a tragedy for them both. She often prayed, though to many it may sound improbable, and she shaped an inward, irresolute prayer as they stood waiting to be admitted. She said, Oh, God, you know all about it. Help me to want the thing that he'll like best. In appearance, Dr. Drysdale was not impressive. When Willie had finished explaining, he said, Yes, yes, to be sure. And you're on your way back to the old country, eh? Well, let's see. Let's have a look. He put on a strange contrivance and examined the eyes through a peephole in it. And how long is it since the trouble began? My sight has been weak for a long while. It's been getting very bad for the last eight months, and about nine weeks ago it failed altogether. At least I wore a shade for a few days, and then— Yes, yes, said Dr. Drysdale. Can anything be done? asked Polly. The doctor pondered. Well, I wouldn't say that no one over there would advise an operation. You might go to Follett or to McIntyre— I dare say McIntyre might do it, and it's possible it might be partially successful. But your husband, she bowed, the question is whether it's good enough for him to go to England on the chance. Anyhow, I shouldn't recommend him to live there. I don't understand, said Willie heavily. It wouldn't do your lungs any good, you know. Here, you've everything in your favor. My advice to use to stay where you are. Let's tap you about a bit. You might take off your coat and waistcoat. Yes, and your shirt, too. Now, then, draw a deep breath. Again. My lungs aren't strong, stammered Willie. I know they never have been. But what you're implying's news to me. Polly rose in consternation. Do you mean that he's ill, doctor? Very ill? I mean said Dr. Drysdale, suddenly evasive. That I wouldn't recommend England for him, that's all. It isn't a climate that we choose when there's a tendency to any pulmonary complaint. And, and as your husband says, his lungs aren't exactly strong. There was a pause that lasted some time. 
"'We may as well go,' said Childers, at last. "'I'm glad to have had your opinion. Good morning.' But as Polly went to the head of the stairs, he turned and spoke to the doctor hurriedly on the threshold. "'I want it straight, please,' he said in a low voice. "'If I live in England, how long shall I last?' "'One can't say,' said the other, deprecatingly. "'Nature at times. "'Roughly, I'm not a child. "'How long? "'So far as I can judge, from a cursory examination, "'I should give you about two years.' "'Good God, and here?' "'Here, with care, and if you avoid excitement, "'you may live for ten, more. "'But you must avoid excitement, mind.' "'The girl was coming back.' eager to miss nothing. Willie heard the frou-frou of her skirt. "'If I can't avoid excitement,' he questioned desperately, "'if that's impossible.' The doctor shrugged his shoulders. "'You won't live so long.' Part 9 Willie and Paul Patchouli left the house silently. She could not express her comprehension in words, and she loathed the passers-by that prevented her taking him to her heart. To him the shock was awful. Now he knew the meaning of various sensations that he had set down to lassitude and depression. She squeezed the hand that rested on her arm. "'My poor boy,' she said. "'It's, it's rather hard lines, isn't it?' She noted absently the brutal blue of the sky, the fierceness with which the bay sparkled. The noise of a little traffic in the road was deafening. "'You must stop in Cape Town and get well,' she murmured. "'Are we going back by train?' "'Yes,' he said drearily. "'I suppose so.' His thought was not that his sight was lost forever, not that England would never now be anything to him but a memory. It was that she and he must separate. She would go, perhaps a little later than they were to have gone together, perhaps much later, but she would go. It seems that it was fated, he said. What was fated? He had taken it for granted that she must be thinking of the same thing, but she was suffering with her own identity and had not remembered to view the situation as Duchesne. Why, that you were to leave me out here after all. Leave you? Then realizing the position, she was staggered. Would Duchesne leave him, or would she stay, regardless of everything else? She didn't know. It looked to her impossible that Rosa Duchesne would renounce her career and become the jest of Europe in order to remain with Willie in Cape Town. But mightn't it look impossible because Rosa Duchesne was nothing but a great name to her? She was a woman, too. If a great woman loved him just as much— wouldn't she now be suffering just as much? Wouldn't she ache to stay with him just as much as she herself was aching? It was so difficult. We must think about it, she said. Would consent entail discovery? Or was his belief in the actress's devotion equal to accepting such a sacrifice without suspicion? As the train bore them homeward, she sat staring from the window asking herself the question. She was now grateful for the presence of strangers. She did not want to speak. On the platform, Willie exclaimed, 
what do i care we'll go together all the same i'd rather be with you and die rosa than be left alone and live don't let's think about it any more we'll go as we'd arranged are you mad she cried he persisted but she would not listen to him and all the afternoon she waited trying to perceive whether he was ready to receive the suggestion that she craved to make during the evening both were very quiet she had wheeled her armchair to the sofa where he lay and stooped from time to time to kiss him but her sympathy seemed empty to him without the words that he was yearning to hear and to herself till the words were spoken the caresses that she could not restrain seemed almost an insult when shall you sail he asked breaking a long silence when you are tired of me she answered oh you'll go before then really coquetry appeared heartless to him he wondered at her for the first time i wish you were a nobody i've been too vain perhaps of being loved by rosa duchene now i'm punished for it it's your position that comes between us her lover or her career what woman would hesitate he did not know it but in his tone was the reproach that was her clue she shivered with joy before she spoke i can't tell you what woman would hesitate she said with a laugh what do you mean he faltered supposing she said twisting a piece of his hair round her finger supposing he echoed breathlessly supposing that once upon a time there was an actress who came to south africa and met a man she was fool enough to like very much to love very much to love as i love you suppose they had meant to go to london together and then one morning learnt that the boy was too ill that the woman must give up everything to stay with him or go away alone and give up him if through that first dreadful day she wasn't able to decide if just at first she did hesitate if she tried to stamp her love out only to find that it was worth more to her than the stage than her paris than her life if she cried to him willie i'm ashamed forgive me and let me stop what do you think the man would say rosa he gasped i love you i love you i love you she muttered straining him to her you won't have so long to wait as you think i shan't last more than three or four years even here you shall live for ever she swore you shall be immortal they went the following day to view the little house that had delighted her so much. It was to be let furnished, and the old white-haired negress that she had seen in the garden was prepared to remain as servant. They settled to take it then and there, and less than a week later they were installed. The afternoon that they moved in, Polly went into town alone. She explained that there was something she wanted to buy— a shade for the parlor lamp and willie who was vividly interested in the arrangement of their home although he could not see it said let it be a pretty color darling something that'll make the room nice to look at in the evening 
she left him on the step where she could see him at the moment she reached the gate on her return. But when her purchase was made, she did not hasten to rejoin him there. She turned up Adderley Street instead into an avenue. Near the foot there was a big building. It was the public library, and she entered it. Please, she said nervously to a gentleman who was standing behind the counter, I want a criticism of a book of poems. It doesn't matter who wrote them, but they must be fine poems, and the critic must say that the poet's a genius. Could you help me? The gentleman was taken aback. What kind of poet? he inquired. There have been many fine poets. Do you mean a poet who is still living? I really don't mind at all whether he's living or dead, said Polly impartially, so long as he's good enough. Well, we have just received a work that might suit you. How would this do? He handed her Victorian Poets by Stedman. If you go into the reading room, you can look through it. She clutched the fat green volume thankfully, and taking a chair at one of the tables where there were pens and ink, hurriedly skimmed the contents. The names looked promising. Tennyson, Browning, Swinburne. A host met her eye, including dozens of whom she had never heard. To her impatience, however, it soon seemed that the author found more faults than merits in even the best of them. Nowhere could she come across exactly what she sought. At last, after infinite pains, she selected a lot of appreciative paragraphs and managed to dovetail them into a fairly consistent whole. But a panegyric on Byron, which she saw too late for it to be inserted satisfactorily, without her omitting a eulogy of Keats, detracted from her satisfaction. "'I'm very much obliged,' she said to the librarian. "'Did you find what you wanted?' he asked curiously. "'Yes, thank you.' she said. At least it'll do to go on with, but I shall often have to come again. She now proceeded to the station, and she reached the garden as the sun was setting. Willie was still where she had left him. In her hand was a copy of a London paper, a paper that he had often referred to with awe and anticipation. She put her sheet of fool's cap on the rustic table and gave him the paper. "'Sweetheart,' she said, "'I've brought you your first review.' He turned very pale. His voice was tremulous. "'What do they say? What's in it?' She told him the paper's name. "'I'll read it to you.' She took a seat by the table and read. "'The minor poetry of the last few years,' she began, "'is of a strangely composite order.' We can see that the long popular Browning at length has become a potent force as the pioneer of a half-dramatic, half-psychological method, whose adherents seek a change from the idyllic repose of Tennyson and his followers. With this intent, and with a strong leaning towards the art studies and convictions of the Rossetti group, a neo-romantic school has arisen, in which Mr. William Childers, whose reveries is now under our consideration, leaps at a bound into the foremost place. His songs resemble those of Rossetti, in terseness and beauty, while with Browning they escape at times to that stronghold whither science and materialism are not prepared to follow. 
art so complex as mr childers was not possible until centuries of literature had passed and an artist could overlook the field essay each style and evolve a metrical result which should be to that of earlier periods what the music of meyerbeer and rossini is to the narrower range of piccini or gluck all must acknowledge that sic itur et astra is perfect of its kind take this and that exquisite ode to a memory or my soul and i we call them poetry poetry of the lasting sort and attractive to successive generations we believe that they will be read when many years have passed away that they will be picked out and treasured by future compilers she paused that he might breathe half an acre of heaven had fallen into the rondebosch garden and its glory was flooding him after a few seconds she bent again over her manuscript and read on for several minutes to the end when she had finished they did not speak she lay her head on his breast while his soul uttered thanksgiving on the heights to which her lie had lifted him he had touched the pinnacle he was thrilled with an intenser joy than comes to one man among millions a joy so vast that few of us have the imagination to conceive it happy happy you and fame could life give any more the brief cape twilight was beginning to fall and she guided him inside she led him into a chair and kissed him his lips and his sightless eyes your chair in our home she murmured oh and the lampshade here it is what colour did you choose rosa it's couleur de rose said polly and she put it on some months later on the border of malbray and rondebosch there lingered in the last weeks of his life a famous poet he had never spoken with his publishers but from time to time they wrote to him in terms of respectful admiration, and then the celebrated actress, who shared his exile and acted as his amanuensis, read their letters to him and cashed the very small drafts that they apologetically enclosed. At the primitive shops from which the villa was supplied, its tenants were known as Mr. and Mrs. Childers. But as they had not been seen at church, none of the neighbors had called on them, nor, in fact, did anyone suspect their great importance. And, as the poet, being blind, was always attended by the actress, he made no acquaintance when he was out. He had just published his second work, which had enhanced the reputation won by his first. The volumes were beloved belongings. From the shelf on which they were kept, he often took them down and fondled them. To a stranger, parting the expensive covers, the contents might have been startling in view of so much pride. He might, indeed, have been pardoned the impression that he was looking at Mavor's spelling-book and a child's history of England. But the poet held them with rejoicing. To clasp them was rapture, second only to clasping his companion, a plain young woman whom he addressed by another woman's name, and passionately believed most beautiful. End of section 9